This is StoryBeat, storytellers on storytelling. An exploration into how master storytellers and artists develop and build brilliant stories and works of art that people everywhere love and admire. So join us as we discover how talented creators of all kinds find success in the worlds of imagination and entertainment. Here now is your host, Steve Cuden. Thanks for joining us on StoryBeat. We're coming to you from the Center for Media Innovation on the campus of Point Park University in the heart of downtown Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. My guest today, world-renowned photographer George Lang, has been taking pictures since the age of seven when his parents gave him his first camera. He's taken pictures almost every day since, shooting celebrities, presidents, poets, and workers with every colored collar for almost every major publication in the country. George has worked developing brand libraries of imagery for many corporations, including IBM, HP, and Cardinal Health. He shot the advertising campaigns for most of the shows on the cable network TLC, including Honey Boo Boo, Cake Boss, and 19 Kids and Counting. George also took the only posed picture of Steve Jobs and Bill Gates together. Inspired by the ideas in his book, The Unforgettable Photograph, the position of artist-in-residence with Creative Shop at Instagram was created for him. George recently moved right back here to his hometown of Pittsburgh with his wife Stephanie and his two boys, Jackson and Asher. And in the interest of full disclosure, I've known George since we were very little boys attending Whiteman Elementary, Camp Kiwani, and Alderdice High School. So for me, this is both a stroll down memory lane and a truly great joy, as well as a huge honor to have my friend, the extraordinarily gifted George Lang, as my guest on Storybeat today. George, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. It is uh, such a thrilled to have you in the studio. So let's go all the way back to the beginning of this, this madness of yours, this obsession. Um, your parents give you a camera at the age of seven. What kind of camera was it? It was a little box camera. A little box camera. And were you immediately smitten? Was it immediate or did it take a while? Uh, I, I must have been immediately smitten because I, I, there are pictures and negatives that exist all the way back from there. It, that you actually still have. In some form. Are you able to print them still? Possibly. Um, <laughs> I have so many pictures in my archives now that it's kind of overwhelming. <laughs> sure. And I'll dip in. And mostly I go back as far as, as high school. As high school. Yeah. And you can still, I still every once in a while pull out our old yearbook. And there <laughs> you are with your camera. And your your name is on a lot of the pictures. Well, well that was that was a great break for for me, shooting for the yearbook at in high school and uh, the school newspaper. Why? What, what did it do for you? It it allowed me, it gave me permission to go into situations that I wouldn't normally go in and explore them. And so you were able to uh, it, um, test your, I guess, your eye on pictures where otherwise you would not be able to go. Test more my uh, curiosity. Curiosity. Yeah, and, and, and find an outlet for it. Do you think of yourself as a seeker of, of information and truth? Always. 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 Because some artists are and some artists aren't. I know, and I know you think of yourself as an artist. I, I, that's obvious. Yes? Right. Recently. Recently. Yeah. Well, I know you've done an enormous amount of commercial photography, but when you were doing commercial photography, did you think of yourself as doing art at the same time, or was it just strictly commercial? No. It was, it was, it was pretty strictly commercial. I was you know, very creative in the way that I approached it, mm -hmm. but I never 
was brought up or really thought about the work that I was doing as art objects, as a print that you frame, as a book that you anthologize your work. I never did any of that Mm -hmm. until literally the last year. And now you've started to think of it that way. I guarantee you when you start to look at the body of your work, because I've seen a lot of it, I guarantee you, you can take a whole lot of that stuff that you didn't think about as being artistic and you can frame it and make pictures out of it. Right, but it feels a little bit odd because the... Um, the the way that 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 you create a picture also affects how it goes out in the world. So when I was creating pictures to be really displayed mostly in magazines or billboards sure. or whatever, but in the let's say the editorial or the commercial world, it's it's different than when you're creating work as as art. And I really appreciate what you know, art photographers do. Mm-hmm. And, and while my work could go in a museum, it feels odd to me seeing it there because it wasn't created in that spirit. D- can you see that it may transition over time into that world? Does that make sense? Uh, uh, yes, and, and it's doing that right now. But but what's what's funny is all of my work from the 90s, I was very, very busy in the 90s, mm-hmm. and I was shooting film. And I would put them in these file drawers and there was three file drawers, then 20 file drawers, then 60. <laughs> and there were there were 83 file drawers of, of my film from the 90s. Wow. And I stored it in Pittsburgh for a while. And then when I moved to California, or no, I stored it in New York. I moved to California and I stored it in Pittsburgh because my, my parents were here. Sure. On the north side, there was a firefighter that built this safe storage facility. And I, I put it in there. And I could never look at it. Sometimes I would go and I was paying a lot of money to store it. And it's like, I should see what's there. And, and I'd go and it would just be overwhelming. And the next year I'd go back and i go, I should be friends with these guys. These are my friends. <laughs> and I'd look in there and, oh, I remember that. I remember that. But leave. They're, they're, they're essentially, I think of my work since, uh, you know, I've never had kids. And I think of my work as my children. Ah, I do. I I think of this is what's gone off into the world and will represent right. me off into time, and certainly which the is beautiful. Will. Yeah. Um. And and I guess mine will. But until the last year, I hadn't been able to come to grips because I didn't understand what the connective tissue was holding all my work together. What do you think that is? This is this is what happened. First of all, I had a really good time taking these pictures. Sure. They were fun. Yeah. And I was getting paid well, and that's how I earned my living. So that was enough. But what happened over the last year is my mom was sick in Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. and I came back for four months to take care of her. Mm-hmm. After she passed away, I realized that there was something that happened in Pittsburgh when I was growing up that made me very happy. It was very joyful. Mm -hmm. And that's a funny thing to say, oh, I was so happy, but I had a very happy childhood. And I think that what happened is I went out in the world and tried to create that feeling every day with strangers. The feeling of of growing up in Pittsburgh elsewhere. Yes, but, but a very intimate feeling. And I tried to create that intimacy through taking pictures with all these strangers, Mm -hmm. whether it was for a corporation or whether it was, you know, I did all these TV shows, Friends and Seinfeld and that 70s show and all these, like all these people that I would shoot. Lots of famous people. Yes, in the 90s, but I wasn't looking at them as famous. I wasn't interested at all in the characters that they played in their movies and on TV. I haven't seen 
most of the shows and most of the films that I did the advertising I for. think that's why you were unimpressed. <laughs> no, I was impressed with them as people, but no more so than I would be a factory worker mm-hmm. or someone on the street. Like, I'm obsessed with how we're all connected. And that has driven me to, like, how, like, what's the connective tissue between all of us? Mm-hmm. And then when I had this body of work, like, how does all this work connect? And I just could never figure it out, nor do I think I was all that interested in it because I was just taking pictures. So you, do you, if, am I getting that, that uh, you think that Pittsburgh is the connective tissue to all this or your, your, your... My childhood. Your childhood. Yeah, and the feeling in my childhood. And when, I went to, when we went to camp together, yeah. there was that feeling there for me that was my version of how I connected with all those and people. And at that time, you, there was no way you could have known that that was going to become the connective tissue. You wouldn't have had that perception then. But I'm 64 now. Yes. I didn't get this till I was 63. And I'm I'm like creating all this work. I have taken millions of pictures. Even the camera I have now, I just sent it back to get repaired. And in two years, there are like 190,000 pictures on it. That's amazing. So it's, it's, I've just been taking these pictures and trying to understand this thing. And honestly, it hasn't been about seeing. It's been about feeling. Mm -hmm. And... When I go in to meet the people that I photograph, mm-hmm. it's like I'm looking for this feeling. And now, right now when I do it, it's so crazy because I'm actually doing it consciously. Whereas all these years I've been doing it, like my mission has been unconscious because I couldn't identify it. You've been intuitively doing it. Totally. Yeah. And so what happened after my mom passed away, I go out to the north side to my storage area mm-hmm. and I I, I, I I skim about four drawers of images. Right. And there's so many, and I don't have that much time there that I just grab some things and I take them back to Boulder, Colorado, where I was living. And there was a scanner in the garage I had not taken care of, but it was a $20,000 film scanner. Right. But it was 12 years old and it wouldn't hook up to any of my computers. So (laughs) we went on eBay and we found a Mac mini for 60 bucks that would fire up this scanner. And we start scanning and I found a printer that I liked and I found paper and inks that I liked and we started making these prints and everyone that came out I would just burst out laughing it was it was <laughs> it was so beautiful and it was so perfect and and I would go through this film and and edit it really for the first time because when I take pictures especially when I was doing film in the 90s I would edit mark them up I would shoot every day. I would edit the day before shooting at night really quickly. Yeah. I would shoot between 75 and 100 rolls a day. So for the, for the sake of the listeners, when you say edit, you're talking about marking up the picture for cro- right. cropping and so on. No, not for cropping, for which pictures I'm going to turn into the client. I got you. Okay. Which is the best picture. Got it. So I would have these strips. I would sit there, and I'd like go through them fast. And I kind of thought it was really cool that I went through them so fast and really think about it at all. <laughs> but and, and my shootings were fast. I did not want... The shootings to go on for hours. I'm photographing a person. It's awkward being photographed. It's fun on my shoots, but it's still weird. And so my shootings would go by really fast. And I would, uh, so I had never really looked at this film. So I pull some of this film, go back to Boulder, pull it out, start looking at it really for the first time. And I go, there's that feeling. There's that feeling. Mm. There's Kate Spade behind her desk painting her toenails. Huh. There's that feeling. There's Carl Lagerfeld with Christy Turlington on his lap. There's that feeling. And I could go back and show you pictures from Kiwani, the camp that we went to, if I had an Instamatic there, and there would be that feeling there too. So so that is the connective tissue. It's the it's that sense, yes. that feeling. Yes. 
That's that's very interesting. Are, are you? By the way, you're also a very good writer. That doesn't come up in your bio, but you're a very good writer. I've read a lot of what you've written. Thank you. Have you thought about expressing that verbally in any way, like writing it down? We're doing that now. We are. We are, <laughs> we are kind of doing that now. But you've not thought about turning that into anything in writing. I'm really bad at turning any of this into anything. Like I, <laughs> I, I am a creative. And I, which might be different than an artist, but I wake up every day, every single... I don't think it's different. I think it's the same thing. I I wake up every day and it's like, what can this day be? I look at my kids and it's like, what what are we going to do that's amazing today? Where are we going to find something amazing? And honestly, it often happens before my eyes open. So, So every day is an amazement for you? Every single day? Yes. That's, that's awesome. I, I've got to tell you, not, every single day is not an amazement to me. Why? And I think to most people, every day is not an amazement. I think most people are doing that old adage of, of struggling through life a little bit. And a, lo- a lot of people live what, uh, I can't remember who said it, but the, uh, that most men live uh, lives of quiet desperation. Wow. That's a, that's a quote. That's, that's a famous sad. quote. I'm trying to remember who said that. But in any event, I, I don't feel like, and I'm not desperate. I don't want you to think that. What I'm saying is, is I don't wake up every day with a sense of amazement. I wish I did. So I guess I have to, it's a psychological thing to get there. Or you've just always had it. Well, you know my mom. Yeah. Well, your mom was had a sense of amazement about everything. Everything. And, everything. And, you know, the last 20 years of her life after my dad died, she went out every single night. It was obsessive. She was in a film group. She went to the opera. She went to lectures. She went to everything. She could not get enough. And everything filled her with this feeling. She was searching for that feeling, too. She, she, she lived to be how old? She was a month short of 90. 90. And she was good till the last two weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Like, two weeks before she died, she, and she had lung cancer for the last couple of months, but it wasn't debilitating. It just was what was she, going on. She had what you would call a very good life. Very good. Very good. Two weeks before she died, she goes, I got to get my nails done. And we take her down to Walnut Street and we go and she gets her toes and her nails done. And she said, I need a new pair of pants. And we take her across the street. She gets a new pair of pants. She goes home. She's in the same house that she grew up in. Yeah. And it feels bright and as beautiful as, I mean, even more beautiful than when I was growing up. It felt darker when I was growing up. And, it, and she did things that opened, opened it up, up a little bit, um, including breaking down the wall to my bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> So anyhow, we we bring her home. She gets into bed with her new pants on and her fresh nails, and she folds her hands on the on the on the uh, comforter cover, and she says, "It's time to go bye bye." Wow! And she never got out of bed. Wow! And she was gone two weeks later. Wow! And it was just like, you know, your mom, who I got to know a little bit over time, um, uh, she was absolutely what you would call a hoot. (laughs) <laughs> she was a hoot. Well, then maybe I'm a hoot too, and you, I don't you are compare too. myself to her. But there's this energy that she had that was just she was curious. If there was an August Wilson show in town, she wanted to see two productions of the same thing. If Bruce Springsteen was in town, she would go and see him. I mean, or the symphony or whatever, and she would. She had this thing that whatever she was doing was the best she had like the best dinner ever, the best symphony ever. And people teased her about it. <laughs> and 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 it was it was crazy, but that's who she was. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the way I live my life. Now, do I get depressed? Plenty. <laughs> Plenty. So but but being depressed and being happy are both 
passions. But you, you look, I don't know if you recognize it or not, but you exude that in the work that you do. It comes out in the pictures. How can it not? That's exactly right. How can it not? I, I would love to know if there's a, a secret to it, if you, if you have a way of getting to it when you're actually working with other people and you have them on camera. Is there a secret that you have to that, to getting them to, to where that picture becomes what it is, or is it just in the air? Steve, how do you get someone to kiss you? Uh, good question. <laughs> seduction. Yeah, it's, it's the same thing. It, it is a it is a kind of seduction. You're always seducing the the client, so to absolutely. Speak. And my pictures are all about seduction. Interesting. It, you know, different kinds of seduction. But I have to tell you this story about my son Jackson, who's 12, and he we we he's really into playing baseball. And we move here from Boulder, you know, last June, and he gets right onto a baseball team here, and he's very vocal. It's like. Two outs, you know, you have to do this and you have to do this. And he's kind of like a coach, but he's playing first base. And the the umpire says to his two coaches, he said, you're only allowed two coaches and you guys have three. And one of the coaches said to Jackson, you know, you might have to tone it down a little bit. And he goes, I can't. This is who I am. And it's the same thing. It would be like telling my mother, you know what, maybe go out three nights a week rather than seven. Or telling me, you know what, just just do a headshot. Like, for instance, when I went to photograph Kate Spade, I was shooting it for a USA Weekend cover. And the job was to do waist-up shot for the cover. Sure. So I walk in, and she is painting her toenails at her desk. <laughs> and I go, can, can I just take a picture of this? She has this red lacquer desk, and she's doing this great color toenails. And it's like, it's so awesome. And as far as I was concerned, I was done. Like, I had to stay there and do my pictures that sure. I was hired to do. But I had gotten to that feeling in the first five minutes. I had this assignment to shoot John Stewart and Oprah Winfrey together. Oh, my goodness. And um, it was at John Stewart's apartment. And there were three rules. You can't show where the apartment building is. You can't go into John's bedroom. And you can't shoot his new baby. This is a while ago. And I walk in. The elevators open up right into his apartment right. and you can see right into his bedroom and he's playing with his baby on the floor and I said John I have to come and take some pictures he goes go ahead in the first 10 seconds <laughs> I've broken two of the two, two of the three rules that's the other thing I've noticed about uh, following your work over the years you're a rule breaker mm. You are a rule breaker, but not really thinking about it that much, and not in any not in any malicious way. You just don't follow what people are telling you to do. But I don't know the rules. No one teaches me the rules. Then you, you're not breaking them, then. Right. I I went into you know shooting fashion. I knew nothing about fashion, nothing. But I asked Carrie Donovan, who was head of fashion for the New York Times, if I could go to a show with her because I'd never been to a show, and she goes, "Sure, meet me at the um, Miyaki show." Behind the Louvre, next Wednesday, just show up. <laughs> so I show up, and she has me on some list, and I go in, and I crawl under her seat in the first row, and I'm just sitting there wide-eyed like I've never seen anything. This is the height of Pret-a-Porter, right. and it's incredible. And she says, okay, tomorrow we're going to a Chanel fitting. And so, okay, we go over there, and Carl Lagerfeld's sitting there, and he's at this desk that's covered with handbags and jewelry, and the models come in one door, and he's accessorizing them for the show. And the editors come in the other door, and he's giving them swag. And <laughs> I'm looking at this whole scene going, what's amazing is the whole scene, not just Linda Evangelista there. This is, again, back in the 90s or whatever. So I climb up on the bookcase, and I start shooting down. And everyone, like, stares at me, and Carl goes, what are you doing up there? 
I go, I'm taking pictures. And he just laughed. And we became <laughs> buddies because of that. I had broken, you can't crawl on the bookcases at Chanel. Mm-hmm. But no one told me that. And then he says, do you want to come over to my house? I've never had a photographer over there. Wow. And, you know, a couple of days later, we go to his house and there are like 25 marble steps winding up to this insane, insane museum piece. It's just, it's, it's out of another world. Right. And we brought Christy Turlington there just so we would have a model to wear something. So we go into his study and I said, Christy, just sit on his lap and let him draw on your leg. And it's just like my whole career is just that. It's just like Jim Carrey were, were in the makeup area. And I said, what's going to happen to your face? It's so rubbery when you get old. And he picks up a clothespin and puts it on. And then oh, he looks in the mirror and puts picture. on another clothespin. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, it's just like that. But all of these people that I photograph, it's, it's like, what about this? Or how about that? And, and it's just being able to go into a room and not think about who you're photographing mm-hmm. and their fame, mm-hmm. not think about who you're, fo- who you're photographing for mm-hmm. and that millions of people or whoever might see it. It's just being in that moment looking for that feeling. Mm-hmm. And I would, I would suggest that, we, that that's inside of all of us. Okay, do you know, so you've had this your whole life. This mm-hmm. is not something that you learned. You just are it. Right. So if you don't feel that as a human, and I think most people aren't like you, George, or we'd have a whole world full of photographers taking pictures like you are, um, uh, do you, can you suggest a way that one can get to that, or is it just who you are? I don't know the answer to that. So I, I wondered. Um, because when I went to art school, I never knew anyone that went to art school, and I didn't even know... You went to RISD. Yeah. I didn't even know who an, what an artist was, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had, my parents had taken me to the museum a lot, and I'd been to the theater a lot, and there was a lot of culture, the, the poetry form and all that. Um, there was a lot of culture in my life, but, there, but I didn't really understand what being an artist meant. Right. And I get to RISD, and I thought, man, if, if I can do this, everyone can do this. This is inside of everyone. I'm just tapping into that part of me. I, I think you're I think you're being uh, um, modest about yourself. Maybe, maybe, but um, but but that's that's what I thought when I was there. Mm-hmm. And then my friend, um, you know, you have to write the essay on why you want to go to that school. Oh yeah, sure. She wrote one sentence. She wrote asking me why I want to go to RISD is like asking a clown why they want to join the circus. <laughs> And so that addresses what you're saying, which is there are certain people that are born to be That's artists. right. That's correct. And uh, I don't think Picasso learned to be Picasso. He was Picasso from very early on. That's what I think. And I think you were George Lang very early on. Well, thank you. But I think that we're, I mean, I can only think, I have great faith in people. And I have great belief that we're all amazing. Mm-hmm. I have to. Well, I agree with that, by the way. But, but some people can't tap it. They don't know how to get there. That's what I'm saying. You just get there naturally. Right. And I feel like what art does when you go to a museum and where you go to a concert or where you go to, you read a book, a great book, um, it gets you to that place if you allow yourself to go there. Mm -hmm. That's part of it. I think what I think here's you correct me if I'm wrong. Okay, I think that you have within you 
or you've never let go of being that childish state of wonder that as that children have that you're seeing in your own children now that state of wonder and awe that I think adults tend if not by and large to lose that we 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 get we shed that off of us and I think you never shed it and I think that's what's been your great gift does that make sense yeah that makes sense okay <laughs> okay well, we're done here thank you very much <laughs> Do I want to explore that? Yeah. I don't know. Well, but well, but I but I have to tell you, it's probably I've, better that you don't think about it. I've come to being a parent much later than all my friends. Of um, course, gro- growing up, their kids are earlier in, than me. <laughs> <laughs> are are in college and uh, and and mine are nine and twelve. Uh, and I was in a situation growing up where I didn't think that I would ever have kids, mm-hmm. and then. I meet this amazing woman, my wife Stephanie, who is just changed my life mm-hmm. because she didn't change my life because all the things you're saying were in place. Right. But she she appreciated it and she supported it and she validated it. And on the hardest day where I'm going like I don't know what I'm doing, this is all so crazy, she'll say, "George, we aren't getting ahead of ourselves." The work leads to the work. Just do your best work. Have your best day that you can find, and that that is the path forward. I agree with your wife. You, I agree I totally, with her on everything. On everything, sure. And, but, and then one day, she and we had not even talked about having kids, which is kind of insane. Mm-hmm. And um, she said that we should try having kids. And then a month later, I came back from this little trip, and she hands me three envelopes <laughs> with drawings on them. And the first two are pretty obscure, and I don't know what she's what they're really about. And the third one, I I I realize she's pregnant. Oh wow! And I cried harder at that moment than any moment in my life. Hmm. Just that moment was like, whoa! This is something I wanted so badly that I couldn't even admit it to and myself. And you were in your fifties at that point. Yes. Yeah. And uh, that was really powerful. Mm-hmm. That was really powerful. Did that change the way that you looked at the whole world or not? I think more it changed the way I looked at myself. At yourself. Yeah. Because suddenly all this, um, the way that your time is organized and the way that you approach things is all filtered through this experience. Now, now for me... Being married to Steffi was this extraordinary filter to, to look at the world through. Mm-hmm. And then when I had children, it became even like it became completely wild because all I want to do is is see through through their eyes and the experience that we have, have that be the foundation of everything. Would I do. you say that your the, the pictures you've taken since your children have been born have changed in that respect? I don't think they changed because I really, I mean, who I am didn't change, but how I live my life changed. So I'm back to where my, my thesis, which is, yeah. is that you've brought your, that feeling of childhood that you've been trying to recreate all these years, but didn't realize it till a year or two ago. You've, you've always had that and you continue to carry your childhood forward in that way. The sense of being childlike or the, the wonder of being childlike. I think that's what I think that's what it is, to be honest with you, because otherwise I think you would have become harsher and, and <laughs> more edgy and all the rest of it. And you're not. Well, that's one thing that that's always eluded me is like sometimes I want to be edgy and I don't have that in me. 
think that's that's a that's a great gift you should hang on to. <laughs> I mean, there were there were there were artists at RISD mm-hmm. that were doing work that was like, wow, how do you how do you even get to that totally place? Totally edgy. Yeah, and and that's that's actually not who I am. So so all right, we're under RISD, so I, we may as well go there. You're you currently are involved in helping to set up a show in Boulder about Francesca Woodman, yeah, right, right. who you were who you knew. Right. You, you you were more than new. You were friends with her. Right. So uh, it, would you call her edgy? That's not the word I'd use, but in 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 uh, relation to this conversation, yes. Yes. Compared to your work, we, sh- we should edgy. let people know who she is. Yes, please do. So the, um, Francesca Woodman grew up was in, in Boulder, but went to school on the East Coast to a prep school, I think Andover, and then to RISD. Right. And her parents were very famous artists, especially her mother, Betty Woodman. Very famous ceramicist. Mm-hmm. Um, and Francesca was the real deal. Like, we were all there trying to be artists. But Francesca actually was. And it was extraordinary from day one, where we're all putting up our pictures in class. Francesca puts up five nude self-portraits that, like, like none of us should have even been in the same room. The work was so sophisticated and so far beyond where any of us ever could go. Mm -hmm. And she did this extraordinary body of work at RISD. We should, by the way, we've, I said RISD earlier, it's a Rhode Island school of design, just so everybody knows. That's right. And, and Francesca was the real deal, but she was the real deal in both good and bad ways. Like she was one of these friends that you treasure because she's so interesting and thinking about things so differently and doing things and letting you see the world in such a different way through her eyes yes and the way that she sees you right but also she could do stuff that was really mean and really tough give us an example of what was mean okay we took pictures of each other once in a while yeah and she came into my studio after we had taken pictures once and she cut all the pictures up oh on my light table. She took scissors and just of cut your, them up. your pictures. My pictures. Oh my lord. And she didn't cut up the print, she cut up the film. So that was it. Wow. So that was She something. cut the negatives. Yes. Up. Oh my goodness. But, you know, she was a very passionate person and they weren't great pictures probably and I learned more from her cutting them up than all the people that didn't cut them up. But at that moment it probably was, hurt like hell. I was upset. So what I did is I reconstructed them and then in class I I projected these reconstructed pictures with all these slices. And suddenly things. art. Maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe. Um, and we had this teacher there, and the teacher, Wendy Snyder McNeil, who I stayed friends with for years, mm-hmm. would tell me her mantra was, don't think, just take pictures. Just take pictures. Which was the perfect message for me because I I don't think that. like I'm not a real thinker in that way. I'm more of a feeler. You, you've just answered a giant series of questions I had. Okay. Uh-uh. That's fine. Um, so anyhow, Francesca creates this body of work. When she leaves RISD, and, and, and we exchange a lot of stuff. She would send prints through the mail, like the actual print of a naked girl coming out of wallpaper. Um, and she would put a stamp on it, write a note, and send it to me through, through the mail. She put a stamp on the picture itself. Well, on the print. <laughs> and she would slip <laughs> little invitations to tea parties under my door, on, written on rabbit fur, or lots of crazy... Like, Fun stuff, but she didn't have a working bathroom. Like she had a toilet, but she didn't have a bathtub or shower, and she didn't have a kitchen. She had a hot plate, so she would come up to my apartment, and I was roommates with her best friend, and she takes showers, and we take pictures up there, and 
you know, it was just a friend and a really interesting friend. She goes to New York and after a couple of years commits suicide. I have this box that's filled with my friendship with Francesca. It's filled with the pictures we took together. It's filled with the prints she sent in the mail. When she left RISD, she said, go to my loft. It's covered with prints. Take whatever you want. Well, the first thing I took were my own pictures. I photographed the room with all the pictures strewn. Right. And then I grabbed a handful and didn't think anything of it and put them in this box and didn't open it and for years. And put it away for years. For years. Because inside that box, she was alive. Wow. But if I opened it up and spread it around or sold it, then all that would be gone. That's how it felt to me. She, she, she eventually becomes well-known. Well, after she that's... died, her mom and this one gallery owner, Marion Goodman, created this legacy that was extraordinary. Like, they were super smart about putting that work out in the world, and she became incredibly well-known yeah. and incredibly famous, and almost more now than when she died. Sure. In Europe, there have been 10 coffee table books. There have been... Huge retrospectives all over in the U.S., SF MoMA and Guggenheim and just all this stuff. She's become very, very famous. But I just kept this box intact until a couple of years ago. I showed it to the curator, Nora Abrams, of the MCA in Denver, the Museum of Contemporary Art in Denver. Right. And she said, we should do a, sh- a show of this book. And I said, or of this box. And I said, that would be great, but I have one really strong condition. This, if you show this work, it's about how Francesca lived, not about how she died. All the work that's gone out in the world has been under that dark cloud of mm-hmm. her death. Mm-hmm. I said, I wasn't around when that happened. I don't want to speculate what happened. I don't want to think about that. This box, what makes it special is it's how we lived at RISD during that moment. And that's what they've done. Of course, right. I haven't seen the show. Right. But, you, you... but the first room that you walk in, she took one of those pictures that I took of Francesca's loft with the pictures strewn everywhere, everywhere and blew it up the size of a gigantic room. And you walk in and you're in the room. Oh, you're in the room because the picture's plastered around the it's room. It's a gigantic vinyl. Wow. It's amazing and really moving. And then she showed the work. That must have been freaky for you to walk in and see. It was beautiful. Yeah. It was beautiful. And... My hat's off to Nora. I mean, she really appreciated the spirit of the work, and she elevated that and presents it in a way that it's shared now with, with the public. And Rizzoli did the book. Mm-hmm. So, so when you knew Francesca back then, you knew there was something special about her at that Absolutely. time. Absolutely. That wasn't something that was discovered later. That was happening at that moment. Right. She was a cut above in a, in a way. I mean, she was probably an old soul is what it was. Exactly. Exactly. And she was seeing things in the world that you didn't even begin to think about. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it, it, and has the show been well received? At the opening, there were lines around the block and people couldn't get in. Really? It was really exciting. You know what was funny about it, though, is all my friends, I have a lot of friends in that area because I was living in Boulder and everything, mm-hmm. and everyone came up to me and they said, are you happy? Are you happy? This is recently. Two weeks ago. Right. And it was so funny because the night before, I had had a long, long dinner with a friend. And I had been really afraid of the opening because I don't like being the center of attention like that. I There were just a lot of buttons that pushed that made me uncomfortable. Have you not had your own gallery opening? Um, not really. Really? And this show, about a third of it are my pictures of Francesca. <laughs> 
So this is the first time I've really been in a museum show. So I'm sorry, I just took you off your off your target there. You were no. talking about people being in line. No, but but I was like, I was struggling, and I always have. This is a this is a crazy story to share. I don't know if your audience will be interested in this, but when I my my strongest childhood memory is of a my parents having a party downstairs, and a friend of theirs was a really wonderful songwriter, mm-hmm. and she used to write write political parodies. Okay. Like what's the Washington gang I forget what they're called, but uh anyhow. Her name was June Reisner. Okay. And she came and she was playing and all I wanted to do was be in that room with her and watch her sing. Right. But I was five years old or six years old and I was upstairs in my room and I wasn't allowed to come down. <laughs> and I became hysterical because there was something I wanted so badly that I could barely even ask. I was told once that I couldn't go down and I thought that was it. And I became totally hysterical. And my parents came up eventually and said, what's wrong? And I said, I just want to see this so badly. And they said, well, come down. And I did something that kids do all the time. Like, no, I'm not going down. You know, I'm not (laughs) supposed to be there and blah, blah, blah. And it's kind of like at many times in my life when there's something I want so badly, I can't quite embrace it in the same way. Interesting. That that happened. So even... For two weeks ago, this opening's coming, and I was with this friend, and she said, she went back to talking about crits at RISD and other things, not celebrating birthdays. And she said, you have to get over this now. Like, you have to, you have to start, like, being happy and appreciating the love that's coming back at you. And I did. And all these people came up to me and said, are you happy? And I was happy. And it was, like, it was really a huge breakthrough for me to have shared something. It had come out like this show is so beautiful and people appreciated it. And they were talking about that time in their life when they were in college and they were at that peak of creativity or or that period of creativity Mm -hmm. that's so that we all know um, or, or that many of us know. And, and I could enjoy it. And that was, that was really something. But for me, it was never about the work. It was about the experience. All these years that I was taking pictures, like the pictures didn't interest me. The experience did. So l- listen to that, uh, those of you that are listening to this show. That's really a key to, I, th- I think, and that's, that theme has appeared on Storybeat throughout uh, the, the series, that it's not about that end result. It's about the journey. It's about what you're doing as you're going along and you're you want as you say the experience is more important to you than the end product which is the picture itself or do you think about when you're taking pictures do you think about the audience enjoying it or a viewer or someone never picking, never never you're only thinking about that moment and what you see through the through the viewfinder first of all i'm only able to think about that moment I'm I'm only able to think about this moment. If I was sitting here with you having this conversation, thinking about what I'm doing later this afternoon, you wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be present. Mm-hmm. I mean, my goal is to really, really be present, and and that's what I do naturally. <laughs> it would be unnatural for me to be able to compartmentalize. You, and... you do realize that is the key to great acting. Mm. Did you know that? No. It's being in the moment. That's all actors talk about is to be in the moment. But. Take it to something personal. Take it to when when you're with your partner and you Being are together. Sure. Like I always talk about people say, How do you take a great photograph? And I say, How do you how do you have a great kiss? You close your eyes and you feel. And if you would do it the same way every time, 
how boring a lover would you be? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you're there and you're, you want to be as present as you can possibly be. And you want to be as feeling as you can possibly be mm-hmm. and as loving as you can possibly be. And that's how I take pictures. All right. So I have to ask because you've already, you, I said I had this series of questions, but I, I still need to ask this one question, which is really kind of, to me, important. Because I come from a theatrical background. I've done a lot of theater and I've done a lot of, of TV and so on. And it's all about facades. It's setting up sets and putting on costumes and putting on makeup and setting lighting in a certain way and so on that you then elicit whatever you're trying to get on stage or on camera, right? And what I notice in a lot of your pictures, a lot of your pictures are, uh, for lack of a better word, props-driven. There's something about a props. I mean, you've got Whoopi Goldberg in a, in a tub full of milk. No, that's Annie. That's Annie? That's Annie's pictures. That, oh, that, that's not mine. Oh, that, oh, I thought that was yours. <laughs> oh, God. How did I mix that up? That's okay. Um, um, uh, that's Annie Leibovitz. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Who you worked with, yes? I worked with her, but not on that shitty. All right. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about her in a moment. Okay. So, so, but you have in your pictures, there's stuff in the pictures. It's not, you don't just, you're not, um, no, I'm forgetting his name. Robert Penn, Irving Penn, what is it? Robert Penn? Irving. Irving Penn. Where it's, it's mostly white backgrounds with, Headshots. It's just from the neck up. A lot of his pictures are like that. You have a tendency to put things in your pictures, yes? Or is it just like you said? You now you found this image of Kate Spade in which she's painting her toes, and the, right. the desk is covered. You found Karl Lagerfeld, and there was stuff all over the desk, and the room had a lot of interesting things in it. To the to the you know to the person watching it or looking at it for the first time, you think, well, George spent hours setting that up. Steve, this is the thing that's so funny listening to you is the way that you describe theater, I would say, is our life. Every day we, <laughs> we put on a costume. Every day we get in a situation, hopefully, where the light is flattering or, or doing something interesting. Every day there is a drama. When I go down, when I wake up my son, I have no clue what side of bed he's, he's, he's going to wake up on right. and, and how I'm going to deal with it. And there's all this theater going on every day. There's no question uh, uh, there's no question. We're on stage all the time. And we, by the way, we humans tend to put on different masks all day long. You talk to the clerk behind the counter in the store differently than you talk to your children. Um, so we put these different masks on all day long where we become various characters in our own life. We don't even think about it. We do it totally naturally that we alter a little bit. We don't walk around. In a, if we're upset, we're not upset at every single human being we see. We're upset at certain people. Right. So we have these different these different masks. But when you're taking pictures, this is what I this is what I find fascinating. When you you have a studio, yes, people come to your studio, yes, okay. Do you set up something for those people, or how do you do it? What do you? Well, this is the crazy thing, and, and I'm going to go back to these LA shootings in the '90s because they that's a fun way to illustrate this. Yeah. So we we would rent a studio, and there were a couple studios, and they were very famous and. Smashbox people would come sure. to. And I had shot in that stu- in every studio there like 50 times. So I would walk into each room and there would be all these ghosts of my other shootings that I had to shoo out of the <laughs> room. And then these stylists would come with racks of clothing. And it's racks of Gucci and Prada and like awesome stuff. Right. And then the hair and makeup people would come. And they'd go, well, what dress do you want this un- unbelievably beautiful woman to wear? And the honest answer is, I don't care. They're all beautiful. Like, there's not a bad dress there. 
but they need me to make a decision. Right. So I say, oh, I think this one's good or this one's good. I didn't really think it was better than anything else most of the time. So why would you pick that one? Because I, I was in charge. Uh, but, Someone but, had to. But I'm saying it, it, at that moment, in that moment, as yeah. you're being in that moment, you're selecting something. Right. And I'm being a little cynical here because I I do actually have like certain fashion that I like better than other well, things. However, you have taste. what they wear was completely unimportant to me. Right. And they'd say, well, what color lips should we put on? Or, or what should we do with her hair? It's like, how would I know? Like, she spent her whole life creating her. How 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 is my opinion on her lip color going to make any sense? Nor, for what my little role was, it had no, like, my picture was not about that kind of beauty. Aren't you expressing what every other photographer does? Isn't that what happens is that the stylist asks these questions? Yeah. But that's not how you operate. That's not what I'm interested in. Right? I'm not interested in surfaces. I'm not interested in what people look like. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in what they feel like. Mm-hmm. So whatever I can do to get to that is what I'm after. So when you talk about these props or these sets that I would build or anything, the only purpose of that set was to get to a place in the person where they felt a little off-center. So I would build sets most of the time that was raked like a stage in different directions. As opposed to touching the camera. Well, exactly, because I, I, I was off-center all the time. My pictures are never lined up right, but I needed them to be off-center emotionally right. because if their feet are a little standing on an angle, then they aren't quite, they don't have all their defenses. They're, they're, you want, okay, so let's see if, this is, if I've got this right. You want them slightly unrelaxed. Yeah. You don't want them to, because most, okay, that's the other trick to most film actors is is they need to get to a point of relaxation in order to perform. You wanted them just the opposite. You wanted them off guard a little bit. Off guard is not the same as not being relaxed. Like, I I want them so relaxed that they are off guard, not um, defensive. Like, I'm not putting them off off center. They're open to everything. Yes. And I like to create a stage that they feel so comfortable on and so safe and so trusting Mm -hmm. that they will do something that they would not normally do. And do you have a particular set of techniques that you use to get them there? I can't tell you that. Oh, that's a secret. (laughs) (laughs) No! You have no idea. No. Every time is different. What am I, like a carpenter that comes in with with my toolbox? You you know doggone well there are plenty of people that do operate that way. I know that, but I I resisted that forever. Like, I, people would, would, would try and corner me and say, you know, well, what's George's style? Well, George doesn't have a style. He has a sensibility. So I have a way of approaching photography, but I do not light the same way every time. I do not use the same colors. I do not play the same music during during the, you know, when I'm photographing. Like, it's all completely different. And everything, I'm back to intuition and the way that you grew up, which is that you... I'm assuming, you tell me if I'm wrong, is that when that day comes when you're shooting whoever, um, you're just feeling your way through it. You've made no plans or preparation for that day. Right. And so, how- Well, sometimes I have. So, so in other words, if, if you're going to a location, a real location in the real world, it is what it is, and you can maybe change it a little bit, but it is what it is. And you're looking for an angle that works and placing someone in a position that I, you're not posing anybody, Steve, are you? I'm just looking for that feeling. You're just looking for the feeling. 
<laughs> this is so awesome, George. It's just so awesome because you're so counter what most people will tell you. And that's just fantastic. I mean, that's just a, that that make. See, I'm back to my my thesis. You're a, you're actually an artist at heart, no matter what you're doing, because you want that feeling. Right. You're you're not you're not seeking a specific item that has to be there because somebody's ordered it up. Right. 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 So even all the commercial work you've done, I, I'm gonna jump to a conclusion here that you've had account executives and other people saying we want this and that and this and that. And it's, I assume, your job to go out and try and capture that, yes? Right. Or are they hiring you to do what it is you do, which is to not tell you what to do? Well, that's the dream. But, but also, like, when you, when you work with a great creative, like, I, I had this great art director at TLC when mm -hmm. I did all those shows named Dan Cavey. And he would do all the, like, figuring out exactly what they needed. Right. And then he would let me loose. Like, he would kind of create the context and then let me do what I do. Got it. And oftentimes, he would uh, have all these shots, and then we would come up with something like, like I, I would just get this idea, because I, I get ideas all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, they're just, <laughs> they're there. You're a conduit for it. So we were doing Cake Boss. Right. And we went through all these comps that they had and did all these shots that they needed, and then I thought it would be so much fun to sift flour over his head. <laughs> so my wife, Steffi, actually made a backdrop. I thought, well, the backdrop should be like dark leather, but we can't get that big a piece of dark leather. So she painted it. She set up this backdrop on floodlights in the driveway of our house in New Jersey really? and painted this all night. She's out there. And in the morning, I have this piece, this huge piece of brown, dark brown leather, what looks like dark brown leather. And I go and we nail it to the side of this bakery that he has in Hoboken right. where they filmed on the waterfront in that alley. Oh, really? So there, was, there were good ghosts floating around there, which I love. Sure. And... I got someone up on a ladder and he starts sifting flour and he becomes a snowman. But this process of the flour coming down and everything is so extraordinary. And yet, when you're photographing that, you don't know what you're getting at that moment, at any moment, because it's it's just happening. And once he's covered with flour, you can't shoot it again unless you clean him up completely, which you can't do. And it's just, you have this moment and it's coming down, but you don't really know what the photograph's exactly going to look like, and I'm fine with that. Are you, at that moment, are you shooting endlessly? Is it lots and lots and lots and lots of pictures? Yes, but you know what happened at that shooting, just because I told that story yeah. and I wasn't thinking of telling this, but what happened at that particular shooting is behind the camera, it was the first time that I felt like I created something from scratch. Oh, wow. And I was very aware that, wow, I am responsible for this whole moment right now. And this is, again, well into my career. I was going to say, really? That's and, interesting. And it's the first time that I just felt like I own this. Huh. I created this. I own this. I'm doing this. It's only five minutes. Did it always feel prior to that as if it was somebody else's thing? Um... No. Or it was too collaborative in other no, ways? No, it definitely wasn't too collaborative. But it just wasn't, it just didn't feel, I just didn't have that same feeling. And I guess what I'm saying by the mm -hmm. by the story of the happiness story and the in, in this story is that this is a long, this is a long road. 
uh-huh. and you start and you have ideas about photography with my little box camera. Right. And I had little and I had ideas about photography when I was uh, shooting for the newspaper and the yearbook in high school. And then I go to college and I'm around all these artists trying to be doing, you know, trying to be artists mm-hmm. or people. Some of them didn't actually wind up being artists, but, you know, we're. We're in this artistic environment, the clown being part of the circus, and uh, and we're trying to create that. And then I go to New York, and I go into all these situations. But in my heart of hearts, I really felt like I didn't know what I was doing. D- didn't know. Didn't what know what I was doing. Do you feel that way now? Maybe not the last couple months. <laughs> No, (laughs) gradually you get some sense, but at no point have I felt like I'm an expert. Well, I want to let you in on a secret. Thank you. I have have, um, made a fairly decent living and career out of being in the arts myself, and I feel exactly the same way. Yeah. I don't know what I'm doing, and what you're. What I don't know if you feel this way, but most writers will tell you that they're always waiting for someone to discover that they don't know what they're doing. The paid writers, people who are getting paid as writers, are always going. They're going to figure out. I don't know what I'm doing. You're always thinking that. Well, the beauty of this is, you would think, you know, I had this really killer decade of work in the '90s, mm-hmm. and that was my 15 minutes or whatever. Like that was my moment. But the truth is, ah, your moment's the, still here. Yeah, the more that I photograph, and the more that I go through these processes, and the more that I discover, as silly as this is, happiness. And accepting happiness or whatever in, in in a conscious way or discovering that feeling that I had growing up and that that's really an inspiration for a lot of the work. Like, that frees me. People think that having kids and getting married ties you down. It frees me. Mm-hmm. It frees me in so many ways. And the experiences that I've had free me. I can go in any situation. I can look at the light out this window that's as very hard, beautiful Pittsburgh, early October winter light. Indeed. And I've shot a thousand pictures, like thousands of times in that light. I know what it does, mm-hmm. but I don't want to recreate something that I've already done. I want to um, know that I can take all these experiences and it frees me to do something that I never imagined. Mm. That, that's that's just beautiful. I mean, that's a... that. that I think there are a lot of people that would, um, when they start out as students or in, in an early age, would like to get to that point and never do. And I think that you're expressing it's taken you a long time, it's taken you a lifetime to get to that moment. Right. That feeling. And I'm not even there yet. Well, and you're. It's like an itch and, you can't quite and, reach on your back. And you sh- and you sh- <laughs> and may I wish for you that you never quite get there. Absolutely. That you're always then striving you're dead. for it. That's right. Then you're done. You're cooked at that point. Yeah. Yeah, there's no question. You're, you're you're totally cooked. I think that that what makes an artist an artist, in part, not not totally, but in part, is that they are always seeking. There's. I'm driving my son to school, mm-hmm. and we pass five bus stops, mm-hmm. and we look at every single person at every bus stop <laughs> because they're all doing the same thing. What are they doing? They're looking at their screen. No one's ever. No one's looking up. Ever. Right. Looking up. No one's ever this talking is, to another this person. This is, by the way, potentially the death of society. Right. But we're doing that consciously. We aren't just kind of like going past there. We're noticing what light is hitting. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite stories is Jackson runs down. We're at a beach house. And he runs downstairs and he goes, Dad, and he's a photographer's son. And he goes, Dad, Dad, come up to my room. You have to see the light. <laughs> and I go up to his room and it's sunset and the whole room is pink. 
And he goes, look, my wall is pink. Look, my bed is pink. Look on me. I am, I am this color of the light coming in. Mm-hmm. And I, I love that so much that he's aware of what makes that moment special. Most people don't see it would be running down and taking a picture of this sunset right. which is what everyone can see right. but he was noticing how that light is personalized it's his bed mm-hmm. it's his wall it's his what he's wearing and and his being is all reflecting and personalizing something that is very public so so this is interesting. I think that you're you're expressing a, a slightly different way of looking at what you've been talking about this entire hour, which is that it's it, it's about getting to the personal in the image. Yes, absolutely. It's all about the personal. Right. I'm not interested in any. I'm not interested in ever showing you a photograph that you've already seen before. I've seen sunsets. I've seen foam on coffee. I've seen all this stuff that people photograph. Mm -hmm. I don't need to see that. Mm -hmm. Show me, this is a very Dwayne Michaels thing to say, who was one of my big heroes and fellow Pittsburgher, grew up in McKeesport. And and a very world-class museum quality photographer. You should all look up Dwayne Michaels. Dwayne Michaels. Yes. Um, But, you know, don't... M-I-C-H-A-L-S. Yes, Yes. correct? Yes. But don't show me anything that I've already seen. Show me something that you see in a way that's different from anyone else. Mm -hmm. That's what's special. When people that are dating and they go on these dating sites and they're filling out, these are the things I like, none of those things are interesting. Mm -hmm. I don't care that you like dogs. I don't care that you, (laughs) you know, like romantic comedies or whatever. I I care how you see the world in a way that is totally special. Tell me one thing about that. Mm -hmm. Not all these check boxes. Right, right. And, And I think that what... What we crave, actually, with each other is to see how we're special, not how we're alike. And, and when you were saying, well, a lot of people can't, can't get to that place. They can't. But it's, there are they certain don't. little things you can do to get to that place. I, I want to change my language. It's not that they can't. They don't. Right. But just think about what you find beautiful. Mm-hmm. If you would go around, if we would walk around the block and just say, what is really beautiful? Just have that exercise because it would be completely different every day, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. I go up. I, I, I worked on this really big dream project for Dick's Sporting Goods. Right. And the head of brand there calls me and he says, I want to see our world through your eyes. I don't need action shots. I don't need to see any specific brand. Mm-hmm. I want you to turn your lens on youth sports. And you can shoot any sport and you can shoot it anywhere in the country. has to be high school or lower age. Right. And I, I spent a year and a half working on oh, wow. that. And I would go to, in Pittsburgh, I, I went to shoot um, an inner city football league. Right. And I, I, I focused in Garfield and the Hill District. And I would go on these fields and they start full contact at five. It's very violent and very tough. Mm-hmm. Tough love from the coaches. And I would go on and all I would concentrate on is how beautiful every one of these kids is. Like they were just so stunning to me. And I just wanted to, I, well, I know a lot of them had issues at home and I know a lot of them had issues at school and I know friends of theirs, teammates of theirs have been killed. I couldn't photograph that. Hmm. That's not what I photograph. I was 
photographing their beauty. Their beauty. And it was just all around me. It was all, it, it, it was everywhere. And I look at everyone and I can find that beauty. And, and, and I assume many of those pictures wound up in the campaign, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. And because that's what they were looking for. He didn't know what he was looking for. He was hoping you would give it to him. Right. And I bet you did. I did. Okay. Well, there you go. So, you, so it, and you didn't know what you were looking for till you got and, there. And, and the thing that's funny is it's a whole range of emotions. Like there's a picture, their uniforms, they didn't have enough uniforms for everyone. So they had to get kids, at, bigger kids into smaller uniforms. Mm-hmm. And there's a picture of a mom holding her son off the ground, trying to like um, shake him into, into his the- <laughs> uh, uniform. And it, it's so funny. And then there's a shot of a girl and, Oklahoma City with, you know, bloody Kleenex coming out of her nose from a bloody nose and tears running down her face. And that was equally beautiful. Like, it's the whole range. Like, beauty is not happy or sad, and joy is not even happy or sad. So you're taking pictures, in this case, in the field, in real time, with no extra equipment, right? It's camera you and whatever's happening. Right. What do you do to get the light right? How do you do that? Is well, Steve, yes. everything's digital now. If you take out your phone at a dark event, yes. at a dark dinner, and you look at your phone, everything's bright. No, no, I understand that. Okay, so so let me back up half a step. What you, what you, I know you don't know this, but I've been a professional lighting designer for forty-five years. Wow. Yeah, I've been doing. I've I've done a lot of big lighting uh, shows. I've lit a lot of shows. Okay. <laughs> And I've worked with some some very interesting people over time in lighting shows with them, including one that I've done here in Pittsburgh. Um, and uh, I'm a I'm a keen um, observer of light. I love light. Yeah, and it's what I know. That's what you look at as well. You see light. I know you see light. You have to. That's what your business is. I feel light. You feel. <laughs> so if you would say, George, where should we put the light? Sometimes I feel heavy, George. Ah. That's a whole other story. <laughs> Um, that, that's my question is if you've got this image that is like, oh, this is a, I've got to take pictures of this, bam, 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 you're taking pictures and the light is just, I know you can adjust it in post, so to speak. You can fix I it I don't, later. but you could. But you could. Are, are you doing anything to get the light the way you want it or are you just happening? So this is the thing. If I would, if you would give me a set of lights and say, set this up so the light is perfect. Right. I couldn't do that. I see. Because I don't know what perfect is. I, I don't think anybody does. Okay, so so for me, if if we're in the process, if I tell my assistants, okay, we're going to set up the lights like this, and they start setting them up, I might go and turn every light completely around, and oh, there's the shot. Or while they're setting it up, oh, no, 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 don't add any more lights. One's fine. Well, George, we rented eight. We have eight lights here to go. No, no, no. We'll just go with one. one. Fine. But, but the idea is to find those pieces of light mm-hmm. that are uh, that you don't expect. One of the reasons why I don't like having a script or a storyboard or anything, it's fine as a jumping off point, mm-hmm. but I'm interested in the black notes. Like when you play a piano, they're all the white notes. When yeah. you photograph Jim Carrey, yeah. he has all those faces he makes. Those are all the white notes. The stuff he does in between that is what's interesting to oh. me. Mm-hmm. So I'm after the black notes. And so when you're like playing with light and trying to find that feeling, I so admire that quality. But again, it's not what I do. Mm-hmm. It's like if someone looks at one of my pictures and says, wow, the light's so beautiful, I feel like a failure. 
Really? Because I am not trying Seriously. to. Seriously. I am not trying to communicate great light. I am trying to create a feeling that is not about the composition. It is not about the light. Those are all tools that I use. But what I'm after is something deeper for, for, for me or, or different. This is, you're boggling my mind, okay? Um, uh, so I understand and I get it that you're looking for this inner thing, the inner beauty of people. By the way, your forte is to take pictures of humans, right. not landscapes, not pictures of food, uh, not pictures of furniture. Right. You, you take people. You take pictures of people. Mostly. I would say, yeah, I mean, if, if you're well-known for anything, it's for taking pictures of people. Right. Um, uh, there are obviously photographers who are very uh, well-known for taking pictures of still life and landscapes. And they're really into light. Yeah, and they're really into light. And the light, is you're saying, is not all that interesting to you. And yet, for whatever it's worth, your pictures are br brilliantly lit. So what does that mean? It's intuitive. It's just intuitive. It's not. There's no conscious effort on your part to get there. No. In fact, there's a conscious freakout. Like when I have to think about things like clothing or lighting or those things, it's a little out of my comfort zone. Really? Yeah. That's so interesting. <laughs> Are you aware of how unusual that is? I mean, from everything I've read and heard and talked about, it's unusual. It's not the norm. Right. It, they didn't train you that way at RISD, I'll bet. Uh, actually, they did. They did. Yeah. They trained you to, to... They didn't train you to disregard light. But they did not teach me about light at all. No. All right, so let's talk about this for half a second because I think it's important. You're in a business in which you've made a living in something that is both artistic and a craft. That is to say there's a technical element to it. The camera has a technical element to it. Film had a technical element to it. And now digital has a technical element to it. Do you think about the technical elements very much or not at all? Never. 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 So you had to learn what an f-stop is and you had to learn what a lens is and whether it's bug eye lens or whether it's a certain you had to learn all that yes right those are tech those are technical elements bug eye is a, a really good technical term <laughs> it is a good term. <laughs> <laughs> well we say it all the time in, right. in movies we'll use a bug eye on that oh that's funny um uh you had to kn you have to know that you can't do what you do and and be out of focus all the time you have to know how to focus a camera maybe I mean, you have to know how to focus it, but you but you don't necessarily want to be in focus all the time. Okay, I, I totally get that. Uh, in fact, it may be better sometimes when you're not. Right. Uh, nevertheless, you understand that technical element of that piece of equipment called Absolutely. a camera. Right. It's it's your it's your tool, your one major tool, and there are, there are lots of other tools, but that's the major tool. So when I sit here with you, mm -hmm. having big reputation around a career in photography, mm -hmm. part of me is thinking, wow, I wonder if I could be sitting here if I'd only taken mental pictures. <laughs> because, because essentially that's where my head's at. Yes, of course, I have to deal with lenses and cameras and, and f-stops and sharpness and everything else. It's just not what I'm interested in. I, I, it, it's, it's what's in my toolbox. Right. So, uh, but, but, I'm, but I'm curious about it from a perspective of the listener, right? Mm. So what I'm what I'm curious about from you is how much for you has the technology changed over the years? The big one is from film to digital, yes? Right. Okay. And has that in any way, shape, or form informed what you've done? 
or not at all. I, I want the listener right here. Yeah. Hello, <laughs> hello. We want to take your picture. <laughs> we want to photograph your no, no, soul. No, no, George wants to take your mental picture. <laughs> yes, we come to our studio and we're going to take mental pictures of you right now. And we charge a lot oh. and you get nothing. But the, but the experience, which is worth a well, lot. You don't get nothing, you get a memory. You get a memory. And it's just not on, there, there's no physical presence to it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but that's 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 what we call the um what's it called the the uh, call to action. It is the call to action. <laughs> <laughs> Mental I, pictures. I I love the fact that you're completely <laughs> resistant to talking about the technology. You, I'm happy to. It, it doesn't it, interest me. I know it doesn't interest you. I okay, was just trying, so, trying to get there. So in my book, <laughs> the the there you go. Sell that. Yes, that's good. In, in my book, the, the publisher insisted target. that we put the f-stop and shutter speed on the bottom of every picture oh is that right that's right and i said that is crazy because i i basically shoot no no i don't but they can figure it out from the metadata okay but but i said i shoot at the same f-stop and shutter speed mostly all the time like i don't change it that much so uh, do you use autofocus or do you focus it yourself i have a thing on my camera where i can pick a dot Mm-hmm. And I move the dot to what I want to be in focus, and Got I it. press a button. That's but that's on every camera. You could do that on your phone. Yeah, so that's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now now you've actually revealed what I think is the essence of this whole thing, which is that in fact you're not interested in any of that stuff. You're only interested in, as you've been saying for over an hour now, the this. This this inner beauty, this essence, whatever it is. And it's so corny to talk about this. No, it's not. It is so corny. No, it's not. Because this is the other thing, <laughs> is I believe that art is about love. My art. Okay. And every single person, before we even started, you said, hey, will you take my headshot? Yes. And it would be my pleasure. And we might even take a real one, not a mental one. <laughs> Although I'll take the mental oh, one, George. No, no, no. The mental one, you have to pay double. <laughs> Um, <laughs> but I can't afford. That. I know that. I know that. It's so expensive. But we have we have layaway plans. <laughs> Whatever that is. Oh um, my, my goodness, a mental layaway plan. Right. Right. I love it. Um, it is in fact um, what you're revealing to me, which I did not know, is that your entire career has been so intuitive that you really don't really know or care what it is that you're doing on the technical end of things. It's right. not that important to you. It's not right. interesting, as you say, to you. Right. It's a, it's a, by the way... Now, now, being a professional, I have certain obligations. So if you were a client listening to this <laughs> conversation, <laughs> you would go, uh, we, we aren't hiring him. But but the truth is that I have this, you know, I, I, I am a professional. I know what my clients need. Of course you do. I, I can get that, to be honest, relatively easy because I've been doing this a while and I'm really good at... Taking pictures. George, you're one of the finest photographers in the world. Thank you. Okay? Thank you. My assumption is your clients understand that. Right? Right. That's I'm gonna That's my dream. <laughs> <laughs> but then then I have this issue that comes with getting to this you know stage of my career, which is people think that A, they can't afford me, and B that I'm that you're too busy. Yeah. And, and neither one is the case. I mean, I, I do jobs where I get paid really awesome amount of money and I get jobs where I don't get paid that much at all or free if if I'm doing it for you know some uh, nonprofit or whatever I'm happy and I feel like the whole thing balances out but it really is one of the things that I struggle with now I I struggle about my greatest competitor which is the phrase good enough 
that people go, oh, we could get George, but we, but, but you know, the intern can take a picture that's good Wonderful. enough. Wonderful. That's that's a drag. And the and the other is this assumption that I'm not interested, that I'm too expensive, that I'm not available. And that's that's a drag at this stage of my career. That, by the way, is the curse of success. Ah. It is. It's the curse of success because suddenly you become you become on some form of a pedestal where you're special in some way. So we can't afford you or you must be too busy. So that's so, success. So when I moved to Boulder, all these designers are going, we can't believe someone of your talent and reputation is moving to our town. This is a game changer. It's so awesome. And when I left Boulder, I said, what happened? And they said, oh, we just assumed you were too expensive and not available. Now, that, now that's on me, some of that. But I come to Pittsburgh and things are changing. Oh, they'll change for you big time here. I mean, it is just... This is a whole different thing. Wait until you really get to know your city again. Wait. I never knew this city. You'll, you'll, neither did I. And Believe me. And I have a, I have a storefront now. I've never had a storefront, mm-hmm. you know, in Garfield, mm-hmm. and, which is a neighborhood that we never would have gone to sure, when we were growing not. up. And it's so, so awesome. And I am meeting all kinds of people, and I'm going to all kinds of neighborhoods, a lot with just my kids' baseball and my son does my younger son does parkour like outside of the city in this warehouse district and i'm just discovering people and parts of the city and parts of you know the process is all of that's window dressing to to your discover soul. parts of yourself your soul that's yep. right that's and, exactly right and we're all going around like through other people trying to discover how amazing we are like there's there's like this whole thing going on and taking pictures just happens to be one of the most awesome ways to access parts of the world that you can't get a key to otherwise. Mm-hmm. Just down the street there's this amazing three-story loft in the sky of this on this historic building. I never ever would have gotten invited in there except I got hired to photograph the conductor of the symphony. There you go. And I said, let's get him out of the symphony hall. Let's take him to someplace special. And they go, well, where do you want to take him? I said, well, tell me about some of the special places that your donors have. Oh, this one guy has this amazing three-story loft that happens to be right down the street from your studio that we're sitting in. So thank you. Finally, I get right into where you didn't even know you were going, which is great. This is really great. This is like a, you, this is like a trap door, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Let's except, get them except, in that door. Except you're not falling through, which is good. <laughs> which is good. You have you've just revealed what your real secret is. Wow. Do you know that? No. Let's hear. Your secret is is you ask the right questions. That, that's that's your secret, and 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 I know that from working with students, which I've done for almost ten years now, and I know that from working with clients that I've worked with over the years. That it's n- rarely about what you say. But what you ask, it's almost always the question that you ask. And I'm like reeling through all my pictures, not all of them, but like these, this box. I've just started printing my archive and these prints are so beautiful. Mm -hmm. And your, your reader should go on my website, which is georgelang.com. There you go. And if you go to the print section, you can see about 15 of them or go to the archive section. You see a lot of these pictures that I've just started printing. Really, it's the first time that anyone's seen these pictures, and it's super exciting. That is exciting. And, uh, but when, but when, as you were saying that, I'm going through these pictures in my head, and they're all result in a question. 
hey, would you mind getting in that box? It's, it, that's it. You know, Martha Stewart, I photographed her really early in my career, and I, she'd just gone through a divorce. And I said, what do you look like when you've come back from a date at two in the morning? <laughs> and she gets a cup of coffee, she puts on a fur coat, and she leans against this super fancy stove. And she shoots me this look. And if you go to my website, you will see that picture and you will not recognize Martha Stewart. But it's this incredibly stunning photograph of her. The first assignment I ever did after leaving Annie Leibovitz was photographing Bread and Puppet Theater. And I had one camera and one lens. And I go to 20 miles south of the Canadian border in Glover, Vermont. Mm -hmm. And I shoot for 90 days. Wow. And it's for Geo Magazine, which was a very, very beautiful... I, I, I used to subscribe to Geo Magazine. Yeah. It was gorgeous. Yeah. This is my first assignment. And I go up there, and I've never shot color, ever. And I just finished working with Annie, and I go up there, and these guys have an amazing puppet theater and an amazing story. There's just one issue. They will let me in, but they will never do anything for me. They will never pose. They will never even acknowledge that I'm there. Mm -hmm. So I go up and take these pictures and come down to New York and show them and go up and come down. And it's this woman, Elizabeth Biondi, this famous picture editor that was at The New Yorker for years and is really like, just as a side note, it's really important that we appreciate the role of editors. Oh. Film editors, word editors, Big time. picture editors, because they take what we create and they, they give it form and they, they, they give it a a way that other people, that, that the story makes sense. They, too, ask the right questions. Exactly, exactly. So Elizabeth is, is saying, this is great, but the story's not there. This is great. We go into the third month, and she said, George, you can go up there one more time. If you don't get it, we're killing this story. If they killed this story, I had no money. I had credit out at all these labs in New York, right. and I wouldn't have been able to pay my bill. I right. would have had to get out of Dodge. Mm -hmm. So I go back up. It's the last day. The sun is going down. And I take a piece of black fabric and I put it on the side of their barn. They're doing a rehearsal. And I start to cry. I, I said, you guys have to stand in front of this piece of fabric for me. And as the sun's going down, they stand in front of there for like 15 minutes. And I take these pictures. It becomes the cover of the magazine. I get 14 pages on the inside. And it launches my career. Wow. Those pictures are also on the website now because I just printed them for the first time since, and they're they're beautiful. They're beautiful. But I asked, I said, I need you to do this. I need you to stand in front of this piece of black cloth. And that, because you asked that question, I asked the question. And that's I, I'm saying to you, all this little um, psychodrama that we've gone through for the last hour plus is <laughs> is uh, that you know how to ask the right questions. Well, thank you. But, but Steve, we should set this scene for, for the listener because they can't see us. I'm on a couch, horizontal, and Steve is here playing the shrink. I, I, have, I have a Dr. Sigmund Freud mask on. <laughs> well, um, are you capable of taking an ugly picture? Of course. You are? Yeah. And, and in fact, that's something that I take pride in. And I feel a real responsibility when I photograph someone in that they are letting me into their life. Mm -hmm. They are trusting me. With trust comes you being trustworthy. I am not, the deal when I photograph people, they know my reputation, they know what I do. The deal is I'm not putting pictures out in the world of them looking unattractive. I glorify people. Sure. 
That's that's the lens that I see through. Sure. And it's not. Uh, well, I've never seen a single published photo that you've put out that looks ugly. And also, I have not gotten a call from anyone saying, "What were you thinking?" Right. Because I just don't play that game. Right. And I respect photographers that take very hard pictures and, and rough pictures and do a completely different thing. Mm-hmm. That's just not what I do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've seen some of your rock and roll pictures, though, that are a little rough-looking rough comparatively. They're, 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 they are the, as edgy as you get, like the Bruce Springsteen stuff. Oh, but that's, he looks amazing in that. If I was Bruce Springsteen, I would be I'm not happy. saying it isn't beautiful. I'm <laughs> saying it's, it's, it's edgy. It has that thing that you Well, you know what happened? Do. Six blocks from this studio that we're sitting in yes. right now is a theater that used to be called the Stanley Theater. And in 1977... It's now the Benedum. Right. In December of 1977, I went to see Bruce Springsteen in his Darkness on the Edge of Town mm. tour. Mm. And I'm sitting in the balcony, and I take these pictures from the balcony that were pretty good, but it's the whole band. And then I sneak into the orchestra, and I go up really close. And I thought I had put another roll of film in the camera, but I hadn't. Oh. And I shot the same roll of film twice. Oh. And what you're seeing in those Springsteen pictures are double exposures, oh. and they're so amazing. Again, I had printed two of them, but the seven that I'm now selling and sharing with the world have never been printed until the last couple months. Wow. So I go back to these negatives that were shot 40, 50 years ago, and I am printing them for the first time, and it is really powerful and these images are beautiful well jimmy stewart said of making movies that you're capturing little pieces of time and that's what you're doing too you're capturing little pieces of time and it's and it's when it's awesome like that and it lasts forever and it doesn't go out of date it doesn't go out of style right it's still as valid well Dwayne michaels did a photograph that he wrote on the top it's it's a couple sitting on a bed just looking at the camera and he wrote on the top this photograph is my proof and underneath it this photograph is my proof. There was that day. We were together. We were in love. Look, see for yourself. Mm-hmm. That's the definition of photography that, for me. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Give me one or two um, things that you learned from Annie Leibovitz in your time with her. What did you learn? Well, when I started working with Annie, I had never worked with medium format film. I had never worked with any lighting. I had never worked with color film. Mm. I was basically out of RISD. So I spent the first couple weekends, I would go to her studio and just load film and unload it, load film and unload it because I didn't know anything. But even with that, what I, my big takeaway from Annie was choreography. There's a certain kind of rhythm to the way a great photographer shoots. And I got to study Annie close up for a year. And if I would have gone out and Used, tried to copy Annie's rhythm and call it a George Lang picture, it wouldn't have worked. Mm-hmm. But by studying her rhythm, it allowed me to, over a period of time, find my own rhythm and mm. find my own way of of communicating and shooting and uh, dealing with clients and dealing with subjects. And everything. Is that the equivalent, do you think, of a writer finding his or her voice? The, that that rhythm that you're talking about is it well? Similar? It's not exactly the voice because I'd say the voice is, it's it's similar, but it's more about like, it's kind of like when you're in your zone. Mm-hmm. When you're in your zone, that's not really your voice. No, it, it, it is. It, it is just kind of like something that you're hearing and seeing and feeling. Right. That is just unique to your own experience. Sure. And I think that's that's more what I'm talking about. And and that's the major thing you learned from her was yeah. that is was how to get to to being what your thing is essentially. Yeah, but Annie 
Annie, like Francesca, in a very different way, was the real deal. Like, she sweat blood to get those pictures. Like, she, every single part of her being was in getting those pictures that Mm -hmm. she got. Mm -hmm. And I think it shows there, too. Yeah. She took the, it's still freaking me out, by the way, that I thought you took the the Whoopi Goldberg picture. Never mind. Uh, uh, All right, so we've been going, believe it or not, almost 90 minutes. Wow. And so we're going to come to, and and come to the conclusion of this little episode. Um, Not so little. Not so little. Fantastic. <laughs> Just really fantastic stuff. So, all right. So, f- famous last two questions. Yeah. Um, in all of your experiences, can you relate uh, a, a quirky, weird, offbeat, oddball, or just plain funny story? Not that you haven't already given us a, a dozen of them, but do you have one in particular? One of the craziest assignments, and it wound up being going over a couple of years that I ever had, was the photograph of Glenn Beck, who was this right-wing talk show host yes. who, was, who, who was on headline news at CNN. Right. And I got, and I had a rule with myself. I grew up, you know, a big liberal in my community. And, and I took that seriously and that's who I am. And I wish everyone well. And I, I believe that we're all, you know, we're all sharing this planet, but I was not going to glorify Republicans, mm-hmm. for, for politicians professionally. Like that was my thing. That was my, my deal with myself. And I didn't know what his politics were. So I go and I'm doing this shoot. And as I'm doing it, it becomes clear that, you know, he is what he is. But he was also on a diet. And we had this idea that if we put a dog collar around him, those kinds of they can't scratch each other. And he held a piece of cake outside of it and tried to get it, (laughs) that it would be interesting. Well, Glenn. It's a prop, George. I know that. But, you know, it's just an elevation to get to an idea. So... So we did this, and he was so funny. And he was kind of fearless creatively. Like, all the ideas we had, he really ran with in interesting ways and added to it. We had him straddling a, a missile. It was, it was <laughs> like, insane. But whatever. He would do everything. And then I get called a couple weeks later to photograph. He liked working with me. To, to do, it wasn't even a couple weeks. It was a couple months. To photograph a book jacket for him. And I was still getting an idea of like who I was dealing with, but I just said, fine. And I rented Richard Avedon's old studio, which he was gone and you could rent it. And speaking of rooms with amazing ghosts Ghosts, floating around, that was, and it was a small room. Um, And I take Glenn there and the publisher had all these ideas and I did them faithfully because I'm a professional and did a good job and they were fine. And then towards the end of the shooting, he says, I hate California. I go, what do you mean you hate California? That's ridiculous. He said, don't even get me started. And on the wall is a map of California. And I get an X-Acto blade and I cut California out and I say, eat it. It's shaped like a tongue. So we put it in his mouth and he acts like he has indigestion and he starts eating this map of California. And the last (laughs) picture, I said, spit it at me. So it's this wad of map being spit at the camera. Well, sure enough, the cover of the book comes out California coming out of his mouth. It was crazy. And that was just like another question. Like, what, what do you mean you hate California? <laughs> so a couple months later, we, we get friendly because he's, he's, he's an interesting guy, it turns out. And we kind of somehow navigate our politics. And he respects mine, which I appreciated. And I guess I respected his. And I did, certainly, when we were talking. Um, and he calls Obama a racist. He's now at Fox, and he calls Obama racist. And I call him up. I said, 
that is the craziest thing I've ever heard. You just shot yourself in the foot. So I take him out in the desert. I drill a hole in his shoe. I have blood coming out and I give him a gun <laughs> and he's shooting himself in the foot. <laughs> and then we're off and running. And we just, for the next year, did the crate. He said, anything you can dream up, I will do. Wow. I totally trust you. And so I would do things. I, I dress him up as a clown in the circus. I pressed him against glass where you couldn't see the glass, but he's this very distorted, Squished. almost Francis Bacon looking figure. <laughs> I, I just did all this stuff and it was incredible. But the most incredible part was I would go to the CPAC convention or the NRA conventions where very much a fish out of water and people would come up to me. You're George Lang. Can I have your, can I have your autograph? Wow. You're George Lang. Can I take a picture with you? Wow. And I'm going, you know, do you know my politics? And they said, we know your politics. Glenn calls you his uh, communist friend on the air <laughs> all the time. <laughs> but you have humanized him in a way that no one has ever humanized him. Mm -hmm. And you've brought us closer to him and understand him more as a human being. And by the way, if, if some of today's politicians who are in the spotlight right now were smart, they would get a hold of you and have you humanize them too. That's right. That's right. And that's one of the things that, especially in 2016, that made me so sad is that I felt like Hillary just became such a cardboard character. Mm -hmm. And Trump, I used to photograph him in, in, in the 90s. Really? All the time. Huh. It was crazy. He would just say, George, I'll do whatever you want. Just get me on the cover. I don't care if it's flattering. I just want to be on the cover of the magazine. Did you do him up too, like Glenn Beck? I did a shot... This, this sounds insane, but in the early 90s, Manhattan Inc., which was a business magazine, they were trying to be a business Rolling Stone or right, something, right. they did a story on Donald Trump talking about arms control, which is like, I was going, what? Yeah, really? So I did this series of pictures. I, I took them to the 21 Club in New York where they, in the bar, they have all these planes, and I lowered the planes into his head. <laughs> and I put a silver service in front of him. And he's sitting there, and then he lifts the silver service, and a dove flies out. <laughs> but I have, like, other really kind of ridiculous shootings. He's holding a bunch of grapes, and Marla Maples, who was his wife, is on her knees eating the grapes. Oh, my goodness. Like, all these weird things that I don't even know. Like, I look back now, I go, like, did I ask her to do that? I don't think so, but I don't really remember. He might have asked her to do it. So anyhow, it's possible. just to finish the Glenn story, my yeah, favorite sure. part of the Glenn story is this. He has a rally at the height of his popularity in Washington. And hundreds of thousands of people show up at the Washington Mall to hear him speak. And he's been working on this speech the whole summer. Right. And he's really proud of it. And we've become quite friendly by then. And I'm up in his hotel suite. He says, I want to read this the speech to you. And he reads it to me. And he goes, what do you think? I said... You're totally missing the point. It's horrible. He goes, what do you mean? I cover all, I, all these points and it's all this stuff. I said, everyone coming to see you has a one-on-one -on -one relationship with you. They're listening to you driving their car to and from work. They're listening to you at the gym. They're listening to you doing dishes at home or maybe sitting with their wife or husband you know, in their living room mm -hmm. watching you on, on TV. Mm -hmm. They're all on board with the politics already. You don't have to discuss politics. They all love you. How can you give this speech and not use the word love when they are these people that all love you getting together to have a group experience with a person that they love so much? Like, how can you not understand that that's what this is about? And what did he do? 
he might have shifted at 5%. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to move Glenn away from what he thinks. He oh, Sure. And nor, nor do I care to. That's not my job. But my job is to say, is to show the middle, is to show how we're all connected, mm-hmm. is to show the love that in his, like, trying to check off all the things that he wants to talk about is not one of the talking points. Mm-hmm. And I go into every situation that I go into looking for that. Mm-hmm. And that's really what I do. Mm-hmm. And I find it in really funny ways. I find it in very sad ways. I find it in ways that there's both of those stories here. What, which one am I going to tell? Well, I'm going to tell my version of it. Of course. Right. Well, you, you, you could only tell your version of it, right? Well, when you were talking about you know people that are real professional photographers, they kind of maybe let go of some of their personal feelings and they they just... Or, or, or people that have gotten to that place that they can't find amazing. See, I, 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 I suspect you don't think of your work as work. That's right. You don't. You don't think of your work as work. It's it's a joy to you. Right. 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 So, so you would you would take pictures even if nobody ever paid you, right? <laughs> Though you need the money. So that's right. a that's a whole other story. Right. But but you would you're that's I think that's the essence of an a true artist is that you just do it because you must. So my son Jackson, I, I, I once every six months, five months, whatever, I'll say, you know, I really appreciate you letting me take pictures right? because I take pictures of them every day, sometimes for just 30 seconds. I've, or, I've seen many of them. Right. But, <laughs> but, but I, I just, it's something that I do. And he looked at me and he was incredulous. He goes, dad, that's what the Lang family does. <laughs> You know, that's what we do. That's like, you know, that's like waking up in the morning. We we, we take pictures. Well, you've been taking pictures of him since he was but, all past the zygote. Right. But if I wasn't doing it right, he would say, put that camera down. Like, he's of that age. He's, he's got a good eye? Um, Does he recognize the beautiful pictures for, versus the ones that aren't so good? You want to know something? He recognizes it in real life. He'll like, Dad, look at that, you know, and, and he'll see something that, that he knows I would love to take a picture of or dad look look at that light like both my kids do that all the time wow and that is or they will put together a picture and then say get your camera oh wow it's awesome that is awesome it's awesome that is awesome okay last question do you have a solid piece of advice or a tip for those that are just starting to figure out whether they want to do this or not be, be a photographer or work in the industry you've been in your whole career or even someone who's been in a while looking for to get to that next level. Do you have any kind of advice for them? Well, it's funny. There's a there's a young photographer that came to me the other day, and he says, you know, things are going pretty well, but I'm in Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. and I don't know how to get to the next level. Mm-hmm. And I just, part of me, I have no real practical advice. It's all kind of like find. It's intuitive. <laughs> find your amazing. Show me things that only you see. Right. And, and 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 tap into what makes you really special. That's it. But I but I I kind of felt like I wanted to sprinkle fairy dust on him and say like <laughs> you know just just don't don't think about what you have to do. Think about what you can do mm. and what the possibilities are. Dream dream really big, you know. Dream as big as you can. And if you have to 
step a couple steps back because of practical concerns. I can't afford to take that picture because it requires a helicopter or I can't afford to do this. Like whatever it is, that's okay. But dream as big as you can. There's no cost. That's absolutely true. There's no cost to dreaming big. But there might be a big benefit to it. There, yeah, there's, there's no downside at all. Yeah, there's no, it's correct. There's no downside at all. George, this has been a spectacular <laughs> 95 minutes. Just so much fun. Are you guys still with us? Were, Is no, anyone still here? Trust me, Did still you fall here. back asleep? Did you wake up? <laughs> Did you fall asleep and wake up and we're still talking? If you did, George <laughs> is coming over to talk to you. Yes, yes. <laughs> George, thank you so much for coming and stopping by today. This has just been a lot of fun. Good, good. Thanks, Steve. And so we've come to the end of today's Story Beat. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to give us a comment, rating, or review on whatever app or platform you're listening to. Your support helps us bring more great episodes to you. This podcast would not have been possible without the generous support of the Center for Media Innovation on the campus of Point Park University. Until next time, I'm Steve Cuden, and may all your stories be unforgettable.